0: The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying
1: to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing, educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me.
0: Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPod's. All right, so we got Ed Seramboli here today, and Ed and I have been knowing each other quite some time. And we just got to see each other in New York City about, what, two weeks ago, Ed?
1: Yeah, it was a blast. I thought that um, the program was fantastic in New York. You did a great job.
0: Well, thanks. It was uh, my first time in the Big Apple, and you never really understand when people say, you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, until you try to go to New York and do something and realize how difficult it is. And not just like the hotel and the facilities, but the people there in general are very interesting people. Cause like they're not they don't they don't really go to conferences. Like they're not like, right. you know, on the West Coast, we're like, hey, let's go to a conference. This is gonna be a great time. We're gonna, you know, see our friends and learn something new. A lot of folks in New York or on the East Coast, they don't really go to conferences. So it's people are like, You shouldn't go there. It's a very hard place to do business. I'm like well maybe they don't know about how much fun conferences are. And if people don't come see them, they won't know. So
1: I think it was a blast. I think the whole thing went, you know, went really well. And uh thank you for having me and my firm be part of it and doing the boot camp in Central Park was a, a really good time, you know, as well. So yeah, we enjoyed it.
0: Good. I didn't know about that idea at first, but apparently a lot of people like to get up at six AM and go work out in Central Park <laughs> in the fall. So that's a great thing. I mean it was Great opportunity to meet a lot of new folks and people that have things in common, get them together. That's always nice to do for creating some community. So that's pretty cool. And I'm glad you had a good time because I had a great time myself and got a lot more friends in New York and the East Coast now, which I'm really excited about because uh, I really like New York a lot. So when you go there, it's good to have friends. Absolutely. It's a good way to get started. So Ed, you are also going out to Lodi Gras next week and we're going to see you there. and. What are you teaching
1: about out there? Yes, sir. Doing a trucking panel. uh, And my part of the panel is identifying uh, who the players are in a trucking case. That has become one of the most difficult things in handling uh, tractor-trailer cases is finding the responsible parties or identifying all of the parties that are in a transportation cycle. I have a slide that I'm going to show, and uh, that slide has um, 20 different entities that all could have a hand in moving a product from point A to point B, and then ultimately could be defendants in a particular case. So that's my little piece. And then we have uh, Jordan Jones and Jay and Christina Hagen all talking on some other aspects. And then I think at the end, we're doing a little wrap-up session in terms of uh, just like rapid fire trucking questions from the audience. So looking forward to it.
0: I'm looking forward to it too. It's a really fun conference and Bob's a great guy and he's got a great yeah. community down there in San Diego. So I'm looking forward to it because I love going to conferences and especially ones I don't have to put on. But I can just hang out like at ATAA and socialize and, and have fun, which is fun. So Ed, how long have you been a lawyer for?
1: 23
0: years. Amazing. She looks so young. Unbelievable. <laughs> Tell us about your epiphany that you woke up one day and said, I got to go become a lawyer or yes. whatever. However, that, however that happened.
1: Kind of an interesting story because um, I wasn't going to be a lawyer. I went to uh, Wilkes University and I was an engineering major. And my engineering discipline was a cross between mechanical and uh, materials engineering. My sophomore year of college, I started bartending and I started bartending, met my future law partner, his ex-wife. And he said, you really want to be an engineer? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm not really sure at this point because I had done an externship and I wasn't really in love with it. He was going to be going to law school, and he said, man, you should really think about law school. So right around the same time, I got involved with a charity organization, a local charity organization called Unico, which is an Italian charity organization. They do a lot of work for disabled kids. And there was a judge in there, Judge Gifford Cappellini, really terrific guy. And he said, why don't you come over in the summer and do an internship at the courthouse? I said, all right. So I went over to my university, and I worked out that I got some Credits for doing it. And that was my first real exposure to the courtroom. And that summer, there was a um, murder trial. Uh, There were two lawyers uh, from Philadelphia that were just outstanding, outstanding lawyers. And then there was also a a civil case. And the civil case was a products liability case and some very good lawyers in that as well. And I was fascinated. I was hooked. The judge let me sit in the courtroom for most of it, let me go into chambers when he came in, uh, when the lawyers came in. And it was really just an unbelievable experience. And so I went back to my university and I said, you know, I think I want to go to law school. Kind of what do I need to do? And they said, well, anybody that goes to law school, they do a lot of writing. They do a lot of reading, which is the exact kind of opposite of what we do in the engineering world, right? And so I had a really cool guidance counselor at the time. And uh, he said, look, I think you could do this. He said, but I think it's going to. You know, going to take some work. And so for the next two years, I basically went to school around the clock. I bartended during the week and on weekends, and then I went to school, and I ended up graduating with a degree in engineering and applied science and a degree in political science and then ended up with a minor in physics. And that kind of started my path to law school. I then took a year and a half off and uh, worked on getting ready for the LSATs, traveled a whole bunch bartended, sold swimming pools. It was a really fun time. And then when I went to law school, I totally thought I was gonna end up in either the patent world or the intellectual property world because of my engineering background. That took a sideways turn as well. So that's kinda of how I, I I always say I think that ultimately the law chose me. I didn't really I kind of it was a process of elimination, kind of figuring out the things that I knew I never wanted to do with my career and kind of that hardcore engineering being, you know, in a manufacturing plant or being in an office like that, it just wasn't for me.
0: So you said your current law partner right now you met in college?
1: No, no, no. Myself and Greg and his ex-wife, we all bartended at the same bar, Market Street Station Square in uh, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And it was... um, Mid '90s and cocktail was uh, all the rage, and so people always ask you, like, "Did you?" Yes, I could flip bottles behind my back. I could flip bottles over my head. We used to do all that stuff. It was a blast.
0: You need to warm up your skills again, and in Huntington Beach, do you not be a guest bartender? Seriously, <laughs> you should have a guest bartender stand. That would be fun—a little cocktail party.
1: I would absolutely, absolutely do. Matter of fact. Couple years ago, Greg and I actually did a charity event at a local bar, and it was unbelievable how many of our old friends came out, and we raised a ton of money for uh, for a local kids charity. Doing a quote unquote celebrity bartending, but
0: we used to, <laughs> quote unquote celebrity. Wow, yeah,
1: well, yeah. Quote uh, unquote wherever celebrity. you are must have been a pretty
0: small place if you're a celebrity yeah. bartender. Well,
1: it was this club though. This club that we worked at on Saturday nights. I mean, they would do there would be 3,000 people there. There were like six, seven bars in it. And this place, it had live music. It had a DJ. It had a dance club as well. And the place was just jammed. I mean, absolutely, absolutely jammed. And we had a blast. I mean, we had an absolute blast. We always would joke that uh, Greg and I did all the work. His ex-wife, who, Tony, just stopped traffic pretty. She would make all the money for us because guys would just come up empty out their wallets for it. But uh we did that and then I, I worked there and then I ended up working, the bartending at a ski resort up in the Poconos during college as, as well in the winter. That's how Greg and I's relationship started 26 years ago and now, you know, it's still kind of have the same vision. It's just a bigger tip jar now.
0: But you, so you met Greg before you went to law school.
1: Yeah, he, uh, Greg's eight years older than I am. So he had gotten his master's and then he was uh, bartending and then going to be going to law school. And so he went to law school two years before I did. And then, you know, his, then I started. And then after law school, he went to the DA's office. He was there for, he was there for a couple years, uh, full time. And then he went, uh, assistant and then started a a private practice. I came out of law school and I started working for a, uh, personal injury firm, uh, for about three years. And then, you know, we had always talked about practicing together and then we struck out on our own.
0: So you only had one job before your current uh, partnership with Greg, and that was three years in a PI
1: firm? Yeah, one job. Yep. I've never done anything but litigation either. I did one pro bono family law case.
0: Those are the worst.
1: Well, not only it was the worst, but I won for this particular woman. And I'll never forget it. I came out and I said, hey, good news. I got you more time with your son. You know, I've got this, this, and this. And she's like, yeah, but. That's on a Thursday night, and I usually go out on Thursday nights. I'm like, wait a second. You told me to go in there and get you more time. I went in there and got you more time, and now you're telling me you don't want the more time? I said, you know what? This is not a world for me, not a world for me, and that was the one and only uh, pro bono case that I ever did. But Yeah, I've only ever done litigation, and then for about eight years, I was the uh, solicitor for uh, mental health for um, three local counties. And I did uh, mental health hearings, 302 commitments for, you know, for eight years. You were trying to get people institutionalized? So yes and no. So there's a process. So my job was to make sure that their rights were being protected all on that process and making sure that the 302 was done correctly. Because some people very much needed to be in a facility in order to have their condition regulated. And then there were some people that didn't and so my job on behalf of the county was to always make sure that whoever was the petitioner that the i's were dotted t's were crossed to the letter because if they weren't then the petition should be dismissed so i did that for uh for a better part of about eight years
0: wow that's a long time to deal with that stuff
1: it is it's still something that um i'm on a board of uh the arc which is a, a national board um on their local chapter which Uh, deals with um, people that have uh, mental illness. And it's certainly something that um, I'm still to this day very passionate about and help out whenever I can. Because I do think that in our society today, one, people who have mental illness are still very much a stigma and it shouldn't be. And we have family experience with it. and, And I think that having gone through that as well, doing whatever we can to help out those that need that help is really important.
0: It is important. It's a good thing you're such a helpful person, Ed, because since you're not helping the hand, you know, the mentally ill, well, maybe you are, cause you do a lot of teaching. So I know a lot of the good, do. Do. good <laughs> pass for some mental illness. <laughs> this job can oh, drive yes. nuts. But uh, so it's good that you had all that preloading to deal with people with a lot of issues to help. You know what I'm saying? Cause you and my buddy, Philip Miller, cause you're even so insane. You're, are you writing a book?
1: We are. We're writing. Yeah. So, Philip and uh, one of my mentors, Paul Schopter, a number of years ago wrote a uh, advanced deposition technique book. God, I'm going to say it's probably a dozen years ago now, at least. And so, uh, Paul passed away about four years ago, and Philip and I have been teaching deposition skills all over the country for many, many years, and since that book was written a dozen years ago to now, so much has changed in the world of how we approach depositions, what we're doing with depositions, visuals that we're using in depositions, different techniques and principles. And so we really felt it was necessary based on the work that we've done over the course of the last 10, 12 years to update the book and put in some new and fresh content. And so uh, (laughs) that's, uh, that's what we're doing. I laugh because it has been the worst process of my entire legal career writing a book. And it was not at all as glamorous as I thought it would be by any chance. I, I the can't United. imagine
0: what you could think about. Writing a book could be glamorous. Maybe publishing the book, signing the book at a at TLU Las Vegas when you know, maybe that would be glamorous. But writing a book, yeah. I think I think we have a different idea of fun or glamour.
1: No doubt. Like I had this vision, like I fly fish a lot, I have a fishing cabin. I had this vision of like going out to my fishing cabin, like scheduling a day and just sitting in like this idyllic like setting with the river there and the trees and everything else and writing. Total bullshit. I did it twice. I didn't write a word. Not one word. I reorganized all the flies in my fly box the one day. The other day it was raining. I'm like, oh maybe I'll just split some wood. I mean, everything but sitting down. So it's interesting because I I learned something about myself in doing this. I realized that one of the reasons that I truly love, A, teaching, and B, being a trial lawyer. Let me first start with being a trial lawyer because everything that I do is a collaborative process. I work with Philip or I work with you or working with my team or whomever. It's a very collaborative process and there's a lot of give and take and a lot of feedback. And I love that. And that's one of the things that being a trial lawyer, like I truly enjoy that. Now, there are moments of solitude when you're getting ready for a deposition where you're kind of just dialed in, but then you're going and doing it immediately thereafter. And there's an immediate feedback. And same with teaching and doing some of the consulting, you're helping somebody and it's a collaborative process trying to overcome or fix a issue or help somebody get better and trial techniques or skills or whatever it is. I love that. And then I realized writing a book and you're completely by yourself. There is no collaborative process. It is just you in a room writing and then that's it. And I'm like, you know what? We're going to do it because I think it's really important to give people some an idea of what we've been doing the last 12 years since the original book came out and updating that content. But I could pretty much say it's a one and done for me, for sure.
0: I was going to ask you about the most challenging time of your career, but it sounds like you're going through it with this book writing right now.
1: It's a good challenge to have. I would say the the most challenging time, though, ever in my career up so far was, Greg and I have been practicing probably about three or four years. And we just had this mentality, like, work harder, make more money. And so... We invested a lot in our firm as much as we could, and we kind of positioned ourselves with some of the more established firms, and we started getting lots of cases, and more and more. You know, we were growing and growing and growing, and more money was coming in, but we weren't making more money. And all of a sudden, we have all these cases, we had all this kind of staff, and we're running twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and. Something had to break. And we kind of like, I remember like we looked at each other like, we got to figure this out. Like we are, every day the phone's ringing off the hook. Great cases are coming in. We think we're doing good work. But yet our income was going this direction, not this direction. And so that was a really challenging time. And we made a very conscious decision at that point. We were very good lawyers. We were terrible businessmen. I mean, just terrible, right? You know, there was no policies or procedures or protocols or controls on expenses or anything like that. And so we decided that we were going to go out and uh, hire a, at that point, we didn't realize we were going to hire a CFO. We were just hiring a consultant. And then our consultant, you know, his name's Joe Chance. he ended up becoming our CFO and has been our CFO now for the last these 15 some odd years. And I think that that was what started us, is what started us on the trajectory that we're on now and figuring out, like, making sure that everybody stays in their lane. Joe kind of runs the financials and the day to day. I handle litigation. My partner does all of the kind of business day to day and then handles all the political things that we need to do, which, as you know, are unfortunately a necessary evil in our business. That was the most challenging part because you look and you're like, you have this thought, well, just work harder, work harder, work harder, make more money. And, and then all of a sudden, you're like, well, that doesn't work. <laughs> it, just doesn't, it just wasn't working for us. So we really retooled. And we also realized that we couldn't be all things, all people. So we started to specialize a little bit more in areas of tractor trailer crashes and medical malpractice and products liability. Know, and product kind of put us on the path that we're on now. You spoke about,
0: because, um, like, working harder, because I used to work so hard as a criminal defense and people think, oh, if you work hard, you would be successful. Well, I mean, I mean, successful, like, well off financially, but such nonsense. It's like, if you don't know what work you're to do, you could work and work and work, and just, it's frustrating, because you see, you know, I remember being back in Michigan, being a criminal defense I'd see all my friends doing really well financially, which, you know, to me was, like, you know, $200,000 a year. I'm like wow, if I could make that much money one day, that would be the, like all this suffering and abuse I have to go through as a criminal offense lawyer from the, the clients and the judges and the system. I'm like, ah, that'd be worth it. But until you figure out, you know, how to actually make a living being a lawyer, it's not very fun because it's a hard work. Boy, all my friends and you, do you, know, you guys work hard. I'm telling you, all that writing, that's boring stuff. And you know what I'm talking about? That boring writing. When you do publish your book, we're going to have a book signing tour at TLU. We have Philip and Ed. I can picture it like a big ten foot cover, whatever's on the cover. Maybe you I don't know, but I can picture it. Yes, I can picture it. So we're going to be could be the first publication of TLU Press. You just never know.
1: Well, and that it'll be uh, well, and thank you because writing it for TLU Press I think is a really cool thing. <laughs> As, I mean, I, and honestly, I mean, especially because I think what you're doing with TLU is really. Elevating kind of the when I say education platform, meaning that it is truly about teaching and making lawyers better, and that's one of the things I know I really appreciate that you're doing. I know Philip does as well, and a lot of the other men and women that, that um, participate in the program. So I think it's really great and honored to be part of it. To be honest with you,
0: well, thanks. And you talked about teaching because I personally love teaching. I, mean, I teach my boot camps and you know these little workshops and like watching a lawyer transform in a short period of time. Cause I like people have no idea how hard it is to get up and present and connect and persuade. They think, Oh, you went to law school. And so many people that went to law school, like, Oh, I just got up there and be myself. I'm like, yeah, good luck with that one. It's like be yourself with a gun to your head, yeah, be yourself.
1: Yeah. It's funny you say that because for years and years, we used to do the ultimate uh, for AAJ and I remember – it might have been Jim Lees who said it. He's a fabulous child lawyer from West Virginia. And he said uh, something along the lines of, now, really, I want you to be yourself unless you're an asshole. If you're an asshole, don't be yourself because nobody wants to hang out or be associated with an asshole. And I just remember that every time somebody says, like, just be yourself. And I'm like, eh. Let's get to know you a little bit better before we actually say you should be yourself because you just might not be the most likable person in the world. And that's fine. But let's figure out what parts of you can resonate with people and what parts of you actually do not resonate with people on any level at all. And so let's compartmentalize a little bit. So I enjoy I know you enjoy teaching. I enjoy teaching very much.
0: And so in hein- so we're doing. You're coming to Huntington Beach, California, which yes, is sir. June fifth through eighth, twenty twenty four at the Pasea. But you were there last year, and so and you and Philip taught a deposition class there.
1: We did. I loved it. First of all, that Pasea hotel is awesome. Huntington Beach is just totally fantastic. Really a great, just a great, great, great location. There's a little burger joint like right down the road. Man, it was just a terrific spot. So we did – we basically did two days of workshops and we did deposition skills. And we did a deep dive on uh, kind of the first day on teaching people preparation. It's amazing to me still to this day how many lawyers like really have no concept or idea how to prepare the right way for a deposition. They just don't. I mean, they have no idea what the elements of their case are from a very foundational perspective. They have no idea what they want to get out of this particular witness or how this witness fits into their particular sequence or story. And so it's amazing when you sit down with lawyers and you're like, all right, tell me about your case. And they tell you about your case and they say, okay, what are you going to do? Who's the first deposition you're going to take? And I'll just use, for example, a trucking case. 95% 95% of the lawyers that I talk to, they're like, well, I'm going to you know, go take the driver and the safety director. I, well, yeah, but you do that in every case. Yeah, every case, every case. But every case isn't the same. So don't you think we should sit and we should talk about whether it's appropriate to take the truck driver's deposition first or the safety director or the maintenance person or the police officer who investigated the scene? Like, What is the essence of your case? And then at the end of the day, You know, what dots are you going to need to connect to move the needle in your favor? So that was one of the components that we spent a lot of time on. And then starting to teach people techniques, exhaustion, summarization, boxing in the Miller mousetrap. These are concepts that are really are very foreign to people. We've been doing a lot with clean language, which is a a really interesting type of technique whenever you're... Give me
0: an example. What's clean language?
1: So, clean language was developed by a woman named Marion Way. It's kind of a, a coaching and therapist type of uh, questioning. And so, let me give you an example. Like, if you have a, you've been in a, a very significant automobile wreck, and I would say something along the lines of, "What is it about that wreck that stands out, or you remember?" And you give a metaphor, right? And you say. It was like a bomb went off. So diving into those metaphors. So then the next aspect of that would be asking, it's a little bit odd saying it, but you say, and a bomb is like what? And it's amazing when you start to do that, the information that people give you. And when you look to see why they're saying, what is behind that saying, oh, it's like a bomb went off. And when you start to and Obama is like what? And it just keeps kind of going down that road is like what? Tell me more. What else? But really listening for those metaphors and identifying them and now being able to dive deeper into them. It's fascinating the information that we get in a deposition. I just took one recently where the driver he was drunk driving a commercial motor vehicle and he ran into the back of our guy and very 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 significantly injured him and he said um you know it was the worst decision of my life and that's a metaphor right and and so i dug a little and said and the worst decision is like what he said well i've done x y and z in my life which were all bad but this was even worse because and then he went through all of these things that he did that day leading up to this crash It was just a cascade of bad decisions that I would have never found that out if I just said, tell me about the crash or went right to the, you know, you made a bad decision to drink that day. But I found out so much information that was so useful for putting our case together. It was unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. So that's one of the things like we've been working on clean language and having people utilize that. And then visual aids, we have just been working so hard because now, I mean, it is an expectation whenever you're going into a courtroom that you're going to have a visual presentation. The days of the lawyer just being this unbelievable orator who's going to woo everybody and they're going to just fall at his his or her feet. Those days are long, long gone. In order to be persuasive and in order to, for a jury to remember something whenever they go into to deliberate in your favor, you need to have a mental image that's connected with a particular topic or idea. And so we work very hard at creating those in depositions, laying the foundation for them so then utilize them in, in trial. And Dan, that's the thing that has uh, been, I think, especially at TLU, that's been really cool. Because we've done them uh, live. For example, in New York, we had uh, some woman come up and we said, you know, just tell us, give us an idea about your case. And, okay, we're going to do a deposition. You know, It was a hiring issue. And everybody else, it was very much a collaborative process, like letting her kind of struggle through creating this and everybody else pitching in. Because she had never tried it. She had never done it. And most lawyers have never done anything like that in a deposition. And so, like when she all of a sudden, she's like, oh my gosh, like this is great. Um, like when, when that light bulb went off, it really it becomes very impactful and very powerful. And being able, you know, those visuals being able to distill large volumes of information into one slide or one yes no chart or one image really cool stuff.
0: Yeah so in Huntington Beach' you're gonna teach a, you and Philip are going to teach a day on these advanced deposition skills, and, you're, and you and you're teaching another workshop out there. and what's that about?
1: Yeah, so you and I talked about this the other day. One of the things that is very prevalent in the trucking world right now are cases against Amazon. Virtually overnight, Amazon has become one of the biggest players in the transportation industry, from truck to trailers uh, down to delivery vans and so everybody sees them all over the place everybody gets you know the amazon products delivered and correspondingly there are a significant number of amazon <laughs> crashes that are going on i mean it's I wonder just, why uh, that is and, and so you know the why that it is is you know that's really one of the things that we have now you know started a litigation group that's been you know really devoted to doing nothing but figuring out and handling Amazon cases from the delivery van up to you know the tractor-trailer cases. And they're very nuanced, very nuanced, because Amazon, at the end of the day, they want to say, hey, that's a independent contractor. We don't have anything to do with them. And it's really a lot of nonsense. But figuring out those different layers of Amazon and how they all connect and how Amazon controls or has the right to control really every aspect of the transportation cycle. It's important stuff, and especially in this area, one of the things that we want to make sure that we're doing from a teaching level is teaching lawyers across the country how to put these cases together the right way so that we don't have any bad law. That's really critical because you don't want to get some case from New Mexico shoved down your throat You know, whenever you're handling an Amazon case in Pennsylvania or Delaware or New Jersey or whatever it may be. So, yeah, we're going to do a day on Amazon. We're going to do a deep dive on Amazon.
0: So is New Mexico known for making bad law?
1: I'm just giving an example. I'm just (laughs) just joking
0: with you. Could have been Alaska. Could have been Alabama. You're like, no, Alabama is definitely.
1: Yeah, could have been Pennsylvania. Who knows? But the idea is like I think the more information that we get out there and the more people know about it, and then the more people ask questions about it and we can give them good guidance and then they're ever evolving In those cases i mean amazon is their logistics system is so sophisticated it's unbelievable literally what amazon was doing 6 months ago is totally different now and i'm sure by the time we get to huntington beach there'll be probably two or three more variations so it's really important to kind of stay ahead and stay on top of that you know that information I would imagine so. I
0: mean, there's a reason why you're able to get stuff in like an hour or two because they got the most amazing logistics system in the world. They do. That always blows my mind. Yeah. Like how they feel like Jeff Bezos figured all that shit out. Because so, I'm listening to a book on audio right now about Elon Musk and they talk about his competition for space with Jeff Bezos. And those guys, they're a lot smarter than the rest of us. That's all I can say. Thank God for them because <laughs> they make our life so much better.
1: In many respects. That's
0: all we can say is thank God for the mad geniuses of the world, even though you know I may have a few different political views in Elon these days and maybe not crazy about some of the stuff he does, but can't disrespect his empire building, though. That's for sure. No doubt. So you said you also do consulting. Is that – I only learned about that recently that you did that, because I know Philip does a fair amount of that. But what kind of consulting do you do?
1: Yeah, Philip does it – I do it very infrequently. And really, it, it's um, – for some friends where they'll come in and they'll ask me to look at, um, I, it's different than what Philip, kind of what Philip does. When Philip works with me, he'll be my consultant from day one on a case through verdict. Some of the consulting stuff that I do, people will call me and say, look, I'm really struggling with this aspect of my case. And can you take a look at this aspect, whatever it may be. Let's say it's there, it's framing or, or sequencing and we'll spend a day and kind of break that down. And it just kind of happened. I had a buddy two years ago call me, and like really struggling with, it was a very complex broker, shipper, 4PL. 3, there was all these moving parts. He said, man, I'm just really having a hard time. I have all like some really good testimony. I'm having a hard time figuring out and parsing out like the really important parts. And Would you mind just coming and spending a day with me and uh trying to figure out what's really important and what's not. So I said, yeah, no problem at all. I did that flew out, we spent a day day and a half. And then from there I've had other people call me and say, I'm having a really hard time coming up with my approach on to this particular agency issue or whatever it may be. Can you come in and help with that? And I'm like, sure, because I'm a very busy practice. So like I I love being in the courtroom. I love litigating. I you know, take probably, I don't know, ten to fifteen depositions a month sometimes. Uh so helping out some of my friends on particular cases or issues, I'm I don't mind doing that. So that's my little I guess gig in the consulting world. Not something that don't advertise it. It's somebody calls me and they need some help on something, I'm happy to go do it.
0: Yeah, it's amazing like all the different types of consulting there. It's like fill up doing you know, he does a whole different thing than like Sean Claggett does a lot of consulting with different lawyers and all kinds of cases. Yep, I mean, John such. Campbell. John Campbell.
1: yeah, working with John on a case right now. Um, big case, big multifaceted case, working with Philip on a number of cases, you know, right now. And I'm a firm believer in working with consultants. I mean, I've worked with you know Harry Plockin, who's going to be out in Lodi, Gras. Harry's an outstanding guy. As well, I think that they see more styles and things that work and things that don't work than we do. We kind of get in our own little bubble sometimes. And so they're able to bring the John Campbells or the Philip Millers or the Harry Plotkins or the Sean Claggetts in the world. They're able to bring this very diverse universe of information to you. And I love it. And I think that it's something that lawyers who Use trial consultants and listen to them, and are have a willingness to try different things or a willingness to change. Which, in my teaching capacity, I run into so many lawyers that uh, every time I hear, "Well, I've been doing it this way for thirty years." Well, that doesn't mean you've been doing it right, and it doesn't mean that today is the thirty years ago it might be right, not not now. But so that's why, because yeah, people always ask me, like, "What do you use consultants for? How do you use consultants?" and use them in all different capacities at various stages of a case as well. And I'm a firm believer in working with trial consultants on my cases.
0: Yeah, you bring a lot of insight and different perspectives make you think about things differently, which is yeah, always it's- helpful. There's a lot going on in this trial lawyer world, a lot.
1: Yep. you got to find the ones that you really trust, too, because it's a relationship. And, I mean, Philip and I have been doing it together for so long that I know when he's going to yell at me. <laughs> you probably deserve it. I probably deserve it, right? Uh, John Campbell, like I know at this point, I kind of know what John's going to like, where he's going to push me in a particular direction, which is great, right? Uh, But you got to, I think you have to find those individuals and develop those relationships so that there is that level of trust and respect. Because if you don't have that, then I don't think you'd be successful utilizing a trial consultant.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Now, Ed, you have a lot. I know you belong to the at the truck at the ATAA because I just saw uh, with uh, a lot of great lawyers and you've been doing this a while. Let me ask you, what qualities or characteristics do you think the great trial lawyers have in common that you roll with, the ones that you're like that? What qualities?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this last night and especially like the people, the men and women that are kind of in my circle, right? And I think that... Um, one of the things that none of us have in common, because I always say, what does everybody have in common? And i was like, okay, well, I do think that there's some things we have in common, but, like, what don't we have in common? Which is interesting. Like, I, none of us ever talk about, like, where we went to law school. It's weird, because I've been around defense lawyers, and that's all they talk about. I went to Harvard. I went to Yale. I went to whatever. They like, we... None of us care. Like, I don't care where, like, Jayvon, I talk to Jayvon all the time, right? I don't know where he went to law school. doesn't matter to me, right? And it's interesting, like, the people that are in kind of, like, my orbit, like Christian Morris, she's one of the most fantastic lawyers that I know, Sean Claggett. I couldn't tell you where they went to law school or what their grades were in law school, but I can tell you what, I know Sean Claggett's gotten a $485 million verdict, and we've talked about that case, and now he's put it together. So. What is the common thing of all of the people that I associate with? And I think one a trait that is really critical for some of the top trial lawyers is a willingness to learn from others and a willingness to try different things, push the envelope, and fail and be willing to fail because we cannot control the ultimate outcome. It, no matter how much we want to. Or think that we can, we can't. But what we can can control is that process. And that process, I think, when you look at really people that are at the top of this profession, whether it's a Joe Freed, or a Satch Oliver or Javon or Sean Clagger or Christian Morris or Bob Simon or Brian Panish or any of these folks, I think one of the, the things that you see on all of them is a willingness to continue learning and continue to evolve. And I think that, like Rex, I know Rex is unbelievable. Like that guy is just amazing. And I've had the opportunity to sit and talk with him, you know, at some of the TLU events. And he's just a fountain of information. But one of the things that he's going to seminars, he's learning new concepts. His body of work is amazing, right? But I think that that is really one of the things that If you have that willingness to succeed or desire to succeed, then you also have to have a corresponding willingness to fail because you're trying new things and they may not always work, but you're going to learn and you're going to continue to grow and evolve. And those are the things that whenever we all get together, different from our defense brethren, we're trying to figure out how to become better and make our cases better. Make our clients more successful, and so which I think is a pretty interesting dichotomy between us and the defense bar. I think the other thing that is a common trait amongst really some of the top trial lawyers is they have figured out what they love, and whether it's being in the courtroom or perfecting, you know, doing really well at depositions or being a consultant or whatever it is. And they've poured passion and energy into that. I think that when you find that, you'll see that then the success will come as opposed to trying to be all things to all people. And I think that's something that, you know, it's just not, you don't see too many people like Lloyd Bell is one of the greatest, best malpractice lawyers in the country. And, you know, Lloyd's probably going to say, I don't know if I'm going to do a products case because I'm really good at this. And this is what I excel at. For myself, I think I'm a really good trucking lawyer. I think we put those, <laughs> we, we, we understand it. And we put those cases together really well. But if somebody came to me with a mass tort case, or like a clergy abuse case, or something like that, it's just not me, right? And I think you have to, at some point, you have to recognize that you can't be the guy who's going to play every position on a basketball court. <laughs> Everybody's got a role. Everybody has um, a role to play and has a position. And you got to get really good at doing those things.
0: you got to stay focused. That's important. You do. I'm sure.
1: Yeah, you do. you got to stay focused. At the end of the day, you have to have a lot of empathy as well because the people that are coming to us are coming to us in their darkest moments of life. And so if you can't recognize that and also recognize that for them, this litigation is part of their healing process in whatever capacity it is, I also don't think you're going to be at the top of this profession if you're just looking at each case in a very transactional manner.
0: Yeah. I know Corey's your associate. How long has Corey been with you for?
1: Corey has uh, been with us. he really like, raised Corey. Yeah, I mean, how I met Corey, he was a witness in a catastrophic case. And a little funny story, I don't know if I've ever told you this, Dan. So Corey is the witness in the case, and he's 16, right? He's just first driving. And ultimately, the defense files a motion to say that he's incompetent to testify as to the speed of another vehicle because he doesn't have all this driving experience. And the judge, judge granted it. The judge said, look, he can testify that he was going 65 miles an hour and that this car went by him like he was standing still, but he can't testify that he has an opinion that he thought that that car was going 110 miles an hour. We had independent evidence from the Reconstructionist on that issue. It didn't really affect the, the outcome of the case. But fast forward, now, so that's how I meet Corey. And now, fast forward he's graduating law school. He's coming to work here you know, with us. And I am his sponsor for admission to the bar. And so the judge who ruled that Corey was incompetent when he was 16 is now the president judge in Luzerne County. And so packed courtroom, we stand up and I said, you know, judge, I'm moving for Corey's admission, but I also have candor towards the tribunal right now. And he's looking at me like, what the hell does he mean? I said, well, you have previously ruled that Mr. Suda is incompetent. So now I have to put that out there. Mr. Suda at one point in his life was incompetent. I no longer think he's incompetent. I think he's very competent. And the judge remembered exactly the case and gave a wonderful speech about Corey uh, and his family. But I have an order to this day that says Corey Suda is incompetent. So- Anytime he really gets under my skin, I remind him that uh, at one point he was very incompetent. But Corey's a prime example of what I hope the kind of the next generation of lawyers does because he's just like a sponge in terms of learning and his willingness to try things. He's gone out to your boot camp, you know, out in Las Vegas and he's loved that and we encourage that because years ago people would say, What is like one piece of advice that you would tell a younger lawyer and you probably have said, you know, heard this get in a courtroom as much as you possibly can, just get in a courtroom. And then what happened? They're in a courtroom for five years and they're getting their heads kicked in and they're developing terrible skills, terrible, terrible that now they have these terrible skills or even worse. They get in and they have a modicum of success with these terrible skills And now all of a sudden, it's like, oh, shit, how do you unwind that? And so now they say, like, what advice would you give? I said, here's the advice that I would give. I'll give you, Corey Suda is a young lawyer in my shop. I have sent him to everything possible. I've sent him to, to Dan's boot camp. He's gone to advanced deposition colleges. He's done immersions in learning skills the right way. And I think that That now is far more important than just get in the courtroom and figure it out because our profession is no longer just get in the courtroom and figure it out. There's too many things at stake. Clients' lives are at stake. Their families' lives are at stake. So now my advice is go to the TLUs. Immerse yourself in learning from people that have done it and are doing it and are pushing the envelope. Go to the boot camps, go to the deposition colleges, and then start to put. Now you get this foundation, this really good foundation. Now put that into practice. Don't do it in reverse. <laughs> How many times are your boot camps of you're like, "Oh my god, what are you thinking?" And they say to you, "Well, I've been doing this for 25 years." Well, no wonder you suck. I mean, like, let's figure it out. So that's one of the things now that we. Really encourage our younger lawyers to do, and Corey is a, I think, a prime example. And something that I, whenever I you know speak to law firms and they ask, you know, what can we do with their younger lawyers, I encourage them to send them to the Trial Lawyers University, send them to the Advanced Deposition College, send them to these other programs where they're going to learn skills-based concepts.
0: That's so critical because most conferences are just lecture-based and. That's good to get the information, but people just keep getting more and more information without practicing skills and without getting up and presenting something, getting up and working on a deliberate skill, whether it's the skill of appropriate eye contact or controlling our facial expressions. Because people's faces, most lawyers' faces are just neutral and robotic in court because they're so in their heads that they don't have natural emotions. Like when they say good morning to everybody, they have like, good morning, everybody. Like, this is going to be a shitty day or like (laughs) they ask a question like, does this make sense? But there's no rising inflection. There's no look of curiosity on their face. Like they're interested in the juror or the witness, whatever it may Mm -hmm. be. That takes a lot. I mean, it takes reps, but like once people become aware of everything, of all of the stuff that's going on, then you can start thinking about it. And frankly, my mentor, his name is Dave Clark. And I remember, Meeting him back in like 2012 because we were at Jerry Spence's last trial out in Iowa, and uh, we were sitting outside after voir dire, and he's like explaining me some of the concepts, and I was like, because he studied Jerry for probably 20 years at this point, because he was like part of the first trial lawyers college, and and he's like, hey, show me a voir dire. So I demonstrated my presumption of innocence voir because I only did criminal stuff back then, mm-hmm. and uh, he's like, does that shit work for you? I'm like, yeah, I've only lost like two cases out of the last hundred. He's like, do you have any idea why it works? I'm like, no. He's like, when you can make the unconscious conscious, then you can be fucking dangerous. And in in the civil world, we call that rich. Of course, I'm like uh basically a very struggling. I wasn't a public defender, but I got paid like a public defender. In fact, public defenders probably made right. more money because because they had a steady paycheck. I was, you know, as a you know, as a criminal defense lawyer, you can't make money unless somebody has it. And most people get in trouble don't have a lot of money because. That's just how you know most of the world is, and so it was a. Uh, it was very challenging, but it's all about making the unconscious conscious. Mm-hmm. one last thing before we go, yeah, when's your next trial? when are you going to trial next, mr trial lawyer
1: uh, I got two trials in December. one is most likely going to go. I don't think it'll go to verdict in a lot of my cases we got to go through the paces, and I start a lot of trials uh and then they'll settle midway through or They'll settle sometimes during jury selection or whatever it may be. But I got two in December, one in January. The one in December should settle within the next couple of weeks because everything is kind of aligned on the defense side now. The other one, we're going to be in it for a couple of days for sure.
0: Well, good. When you get in it, when you get out of it, let me know. I will. And uh, we could do a case analysis and we could talk about what you learned. Absolutely. I just talked to my buddy Panish yesterday because he's been in trial because He's like been aching to get in the trial because he's like, to keep settling, to keep paying me. I'm like, I know it's such a burden, Brian. Oh, but uh, because like they were doing a focus group in Vegas, him and Spencer Lucas, who I've known for a long time. And I was hanging out with them a bit when they were doing it. It sounded like a pretty good case. So the defense was only offering 200000 It was a terrible sex abuse case for these young for these men. But they got a $135 million verdict yesterday. That's awesome. Now we got a good negotiating starting point. And Pan, she doesn't, he likes to... That's a hell of a verdict, though. But Good for that. He's such a great guy, too, besides being a hell of a lawyer. Now he's coming out to Vegas. Like, I got to go to Vegas tomorrow. I call him yesterday. He's like, I'm at in and out I'm celebrating. I'm like, I'd celebrate, too. <laughs> I'm like,
1: yeah, he's a great guy. I, he's a great I, guy. Every time I've had the opportunity to hang out with him, man, he's just a terrific guy.
0: No, he is. And he's coming to you – know, he couldn't make it to New York because he's like, I couldn't make New York, Ambrose. I'm trying to case. I'm like, okay, Brian. Okay, Panish. Well, don't screw up Huntington Beach in Vegas because he's uh, – <laughs> Such a great host, you know, like when he's at conferences and stuff, he's always so, mm-hmm. he's always, you know, there's some, some people come in, they speak and they leave. Panish comes in, he hangs out and he socializes the people. Anyway. All right, boy I got to get on with my life here. I got mass torts made perfect in town here in Vegas <laughs> over at the Blasio. So I go visit friends over there all and right. hang out. It's the good thing about living in Vegas. A lot of conferences come here. What a coincidence, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, who knew when I moved here, there'd be like all these conferences here.
1: Yeah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you,
0: Dan. Hey, great seeing you. Great wrapping. And I will uh, see you soon in live. Okay. I'll see you next week at LottieGraw. It's going to be dope. I'll see you next week. All right. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University. Produced and powered by LawPods.